In Mark chapter three, verses 11 through 12, it says, whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Today, Jesus gives us the first step on how to rob a house. This is day four. Welcome to the Journey Through Mark podcast, where every day we set aside space in our lives to experience God's word. Together, we'll discuss the context and meaning of each passage and how the book of Mark can help us understand more about who God is and the story he's writing for each of us every day. Welcome back to day four of the Journey Through Mark podcast. I'm here again with Brendan Lang. Yo. And Melissa Payne. Hi. Which rhymes in my world. <laughs> last season. Lang and Pang. Last season, we had a big dispute about this, but this is my world. Yeah. You're in my world now. <laughs> That's right. You're an artist. You can sort of bend the rules of well, sound. Right. And- okay. First off, how dare you? <laughs> that was a compliment. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So Tyler did put poems in our book. And they if don't always rhyme that. perfectly. Well, okay, whatever. They're poetry. They're I not, literally never tried to. It's not prose. Did Let's any put it that of them way. rhyme? I think so. Wow. In what, I read it once. In and what I, book? What are you talking about? If they did, <laughs> if they did, it was purely coincidental. Gotcha. Oh, okay. Well, okay. I don't remember. What book are we talking about? The Journey book. You put the, the rhymes thing in we're there? doing no, right now. I did not put rhymes in there. <laughs> I didn't even know you got a chance to add content. I thought that was all Brendan. Yeah. yeah no. Who knew? It's been my little secret. Oh, that's funny. You're like, I get to caption. Tyler's speaking the of pictures. secrets. Speaking of secrets, yeah. <laughs> speaking of secrets, Brendan, have you ever had to keep a really big secret? Hmm. Yes. I'm I mean, not talking about right now. You don't need to like unveil anything. I do not have any secrets to my knowledge right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, I kept a secret from my wife when I wanted to propose to her. Okay. That was oh, a, that was a, a good one. I mean, secret. it wasn't, she, yeah. we knew we were going to get engaged. It wasn't like, So it wasn't really a secret. It was a secret when I was going to do it and how I was going to do it. Her family invited me to go with them on the vacation to Colorado. Okay. And I told her I couldn't go. But I was mm. like, oh, this is, this is my chance. I can surprise right. her. Because you totally could go. Out there. Like, well, I asked my supervisor <laughs> and he's like, yeah, you can go. Somewhat of a lie. So I didn't have permission at the time. Okay. Told her I couldn't go. Okay. Told, told her I needed to focus on work because well, it was a busy season. I'll allow it. Okay. And went out there, surprised her, and I mean, I could tell you more. The rest but, is history. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good secret. I almost actually ruined the secret because I texted her on the way. <gasps> I meant to text her mom saying, I'm an hour away, and uh-huh. I actually texted her. And, and what did you say? <laughs> that is I, I, I quickly texted her mom and said, intercept her phone and just delete, delete whatever that. message I just sent her. So oh, wow. she did it. Rachel never found out. And, oh, that's, oh, that's good. nice. That's yep. Yeah. It's a good secret. What that about you, Melissa? That is a good secret. I would say the big ones are like when someone's pregnant or getting engaged or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you can't tell anybody until it's time like that they want to share with everybody. Right. Those are probably the big secrets. Do you ever ruin any secrets? I'm a really good secret keeper. Oh, I am. I don't like to ruin secrets because I love surprises so much. And I don't want people to ruin my surprise. So Mm. I don't want to ruin other people's surprises. That's very much like Jesus. He doesn't want people to ruin his surprise. That's right. That's why. Shh. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. He does that. He gives them strict orders, which is... Very militaristic. Yeah. It's very interesting it's maybe to me. the only thing militaristic about what Jesus does hmm. is giving strict orders. Well, we'll talk about this in a little bit. Well, why don't we just get started? We can started. talk about it now, right? If you want to take us through a commentary, <laughs> let's go. There you go. Day four, the messianic secret. Many times in the book of Mark, Jesus makes a request that can seem baffling. Referred to by scholars as the messianic secret, Jesus frequently asks for his identity to be hidden. For example, when demons declare that Jesus is the Son of God, in Mark 3, 11 through 12, Jesus gives them strict orders not to tell others about him. 
And Jesus doesn't only silence demons, he also asks humans to keep his identity secret when they discover who he truly is. This begs the question, why would Jesus want to hide his identity if it was central to the gospel that he would eventually want everyone to hear? Jesus' secrecy could be explained in a few different ways. In some situations, Jesus may have been concerned about how this information would be used. This seems to be the case when he silences demons. Magic manuals written around this time give evidence of a widespread belief that exorcists could drive out demons by pronouncing the demons' names. By pronouncing Jesus' title Son of God, the demons may have been attempting to outmaneuver Jesus and gain control of him. In these situations, Jesus' silencing of the spirits was a repudiation of their efforts. He would not be manipulated by them. In other situations, Jesus' secrecy may have reflected a concern about how people would understand his messianic identity. At that time, Messiah was a politically loaded term, as was the title Son of God. Son of God was a title used for Roman emperors. Messiah was a title used by Jews to refer to the hoped-for Jewish king. Many of Jesus' contemporaries anticipated that a coming Messiah would free them from their subservience to Rome. As the Messiah, Jesus would confront the systems of sin and injustice that characterized the Roman Empire, but Jesus wouldn't accomplish this through military power. Instead, it would be through a life of service and suffering. Jesus asked people who recognized him to conceal his identity until after his crucifixion because it's in view of the cross that Jesus' messianic identity is most clearly revealed. On this side of history, Jesus' status as the Messiah is no longer something to conceal. Jesus asked that we share the gospel with others. But in doing that, we can't misunderstand what it means to say he is the Messiah. Jesus isn't someone we can manipulate for our own personal or political gain. He doesn't accomplish his mission through force or coercion. If we are true followers of Jesus, then when we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God, we ought to do it by living lives of love, service, and sacrifice. For day four, we're reading Mark chapter three, verses seven through 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. 
Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Hey, Melissa, do you want to read our questions for day four? First question. In today's reading, Jesus faced backlash from his family for potentially imperiling their reputation and safety. When have you experienced similar pushback for living like Jesus? How did Jesus respond to his family, and how can this be an encouragement for us today? Second question. Mark 3.29 contains a warning about what is often called the unforgivable sin. It's important to understand that Jesus isn't talking about just any random word spoken against the Holy Spirit. He's describing an intentional and ongoing denial of the Spirit's redemptive work through Jesus. If you have any concern that you may have committed this sin, this is a sign that you haven't, and you have no real reason to worry. Still, Jesus' warnings should make us cautious about demonizing others, especially those who claim to follow Christ. Why do you suppose we are so quick to vilify those we disagree with? What would be a more Christ-oriented way of engaging with those we don't agree with? You know what, I really do identify with Jesus in this house when he can't even eat. Sometimes I get working so hard, I forget to eat. And you have kids flocking around you. Yeah. And... Mm-hmm. Well, not really that so much as like my family is like, have you eaten today? And I'm like, what day is today? <laughs> I don't hmm. know. So that's how I'm like Jesus. Interesting. I forget to eat. I don't think I ever really that's forget to eat. That's not a problem for me. Yeah, yeah. me neither. <laughs> well, we all have our different gifts. We can't all be perfect. <laughs> no, I mean, there's other ways I'm not like Jesus. I'm not saying I'm just like him. <laughs> <laughs> for example, not a Messiah. <laughs> and you don't have a messianic secret. Right. That and I know of. And I can't do miracles. So well, then there's that. <laughs> anything from you over there? No, I can't do miracles either. <laughs> hmm. How do you feel like you are like Jesus? Though? How do I feel like I am like Jesus? Mm-hmm. I try to live my life like he did and <laughs> care for others the way he did. I don't know. Yeah. That's, you wander in the about, wilderness for a good, good deal of time. I wandered, used to wander around the farm. Wander, That's true. That's a wilderness. Gravel roads. That's count. Wilderness areas. Mm-hmm. The word translated as wilderness sometimes refers to places that are not really very wilderness-like in Mark. So like Desolate. there are places around the Sea of Galilee that are referred to as same word translated as wilderness, yeah. but mm-hmm. they don't translate as wilderness because if you go there, it's like, well, this isn't really wilderness. This is green grass, pasture, you know, there's More solitary like places. Isolated, yep. desolate. Hmm, interesting. Yep. We start out by a body of water again. I love this. Is that how it starts? Yeah. Jesus yeah. is always talking near bodies of water. What's he his deal? Is. Well, he spends most of his time by this body. Of, <laughs> well, it's it, one body of water that... True. And to be fair, it says right here, he's like, we're looking to make a quick escape if he needs it. Right. He's like, tells him to have a boat ready. He's like, get that boat ready. People get a little too close, <laughs> but if I'm in a boat... Do. That's like how we should 
preach and teach in our churches. We got to have church out by the lake <laughs> and pastor getting a boat and just yeah, in case anything from the lake. happens. <laughs> That's a good idea. Did you ever do that? Did you ever see that like at a camp or anything? Oh yeah, at a camp. Oh, sure. for sure. I yeah. was going to say like zombie apocalypse. That's also a good. <laughs> oh. Go get in a boat. They can't get to you. But anyways, today Jesus has a secret and he wants everybody to be good at teaching it. But what's the secret that's really happening here, Brendan? We've talked about this a few times, right? Yeah. yeah. So we'll just unpack it a little bit it's more. Like Why has it, it got to be a big word like that? Messianic. Right. Well, that's because that's just how Markin scholars have referred to it over the last the Markin, years. The Markin mm-hmm. guys. Okay. Yeah. So dumb this down for me because I don't like big words. So, so Messiah. So basically there are multiple times, and you see this in the other gospels as well, but you see that more times in the book of Mark mm-hmm. where Jesus essentially tells others, don't reveal whatever you seem to know about me to others, or don't tell others about what I did for you, things like this. And this is surprising to us, I think, sometimes as Christians, because we get to the end of the Gospels and we read things like Matthew 28, and he says, mm-hmm. go into the world, make disciples of all nations, right? Mm-hmm. And we understand that we're supposed to share the Gospel with others. If Jesus is the heart of the Gospel, then right. how do we think about these things? And basically, it seems that he wants people to hide his secret. There might be multiple reasons at play here. One, we kind of talk about this with the demons. Yeah. There's some debate about this, but I think it's really interesting, this idea that at this time, we can look at different Jewish texts that talk about how people would exercise demons. And they do this by speaking a demon's name. And we see demons actually pronouncing Jesus's name. So Mm -hmm. this has been interpreted by some people as sort of a way of the demons trying to gain power over Jesus to outmaneuver him. And he, of course, silences them, shows he has power over them and tells them not to reveal that name or his identity to others. Mm -hmm. So there could be that at play. What's certainly at play, especially when he's talking to people, he didn't want people to misunderstand what it meant to say that he was the Messiah, right? Because people were looking for this. They were expecting around Mm -hmm. this time that some sort of political leader would rise up and help free the Jews from their subservience to Rome. Basically, they thought somebody would overthrow the Roman Empire. Yeah, Or exactly. at least right. in that region yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah, specifically political leader. And Jesus does confront political powers. I really do believe he's mm-hmm. doing that in the Gospel of Mark. But the way he does it isn't in the way that the people would expect. It's not with like right. pitchforks and like yeah, exactly. going right. to war. <laughs> yeah, and so there's a point later on in Mark 9 where... He has this experience called the transfiguration. He Mm -hmm. reveals his identity again to a couple of his disciples, and he tells them not to tell others about this until after his crucifixion and resurrection. And I believe it's because it's at the crucifixion at that moment that Jesus's messianic role is fulfilled. That's when he becomes king in the gospel of Mark. It is interesting too. You've got like kind of the fellowship of the ring sort of thing up on this mountaintop here with the 12 disciples. He like calls them all with names that I don't know how to pronounce and... (laughs) He's like, you guys can do this too now. You see everything I've been doing? You mm. can do it too. And That's interesting. It's an interesting sort of commissioning. Was this something that people did? Like mm-hmm. they just like commissioned their Come followers? And yeah. Like, yeah, what's going on here with this little ritual? What I think is most important, let's say with this ritual is one, the setting. It's on a mountainside. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, God would reveal himself on mountains. So mm-hmm. it's not a coincidence that he's doing this on a mountain. We don't really know which one. I kind of think it's, you've been to Israel. Yeah. Mount Arbel. It's this. Oh. Cool cliff. Yeah, y'all talk about Israel. Yeah, actually from from there. there. So it could be there. Who knows? But it's a mountainside, which is important. And two, 
he picks out 12. As you were reading this, I was wondering, I wonder if he actually called more to be with him. Mm-hmm. Notice what he says again. Verse 13, it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. doesn't specify how many or who. And then it says he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. That number 12 is significant biblically because the nation of Israel mm-hmm. had 12 tribes. Mm-hmm. And so this is really a symbolic gesture. The way some people talk about it is he's reconstituting Israel. Mm -hmm. If he's come to be the king of the Jews, to be the king of Israel, to be the Messiah, then he's gathering around 12 people who are symbolic of Israel to go and be with him and to fulfill the role that Israel originally was given in the Old Testament. Well, and it's cool because they get sort of the same power that he has to like preach and also to drive out demons, which I'm not going to lie, all of the demon talk we've had so far caught me off guard. I didn't expect to have so many uh, what people call like spiritual warfare, Mm -hmm. you know, these like underlying demon versus Jesus situations catches me off guard. But people at this time, this is kind of a common situation. It's common. And I'd also say they're just much more sensitive to that world. I think we live in such a naturalistic culture that we, and I'm guilty of this. I'll be the first one to say that I look for natural answers to things and explanations to things. And they are much more in tune with the supernatural world. Hmm. And I would say that there's really probably more of a continuum, I would think. Yeah. You know, for instance, there's a different miracle Jesus performs later in the book where it seems like the person is suffering from epilepsy. Mm-hmm. And so very naturalistic types of scholars who want to discredit Jesus for all his miracles and take the supernatural out of this will look at that and say, this is clearly epilepsy mm-hmm. that's happening here. And when the seizure ends, it's mm-hmm. all good, right? But I think the way scripture wants us to think about this yeah. is that there's a continuum that even behind physical and natural Mm -hmm. things that can be explained scientifically and biologically and whatever, there can still be supernatural forces at play just Mm -hmm. as God is this supernatural force that's behind everything that's happening in our natural world. Well, it even says like in verse 22, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, and he is driving them out. So even these guys are like on board and yeah. also who is Beelzebul? What's <laughs> right? We got names. Like even they're able it's to be like, oh, name. Beelzebul. We know yeah. this guy. So they know the names of the demons. At least this one, right? Yeah. Well, so, who is this guy? Yeah, who is it? Beelzebul, doesn't it say right here? He's the prince oh, of demons. prince of demons. There you go. How do you know the, that? Is that like Mark tells common? Us. Okay. <laughs> is that like the main guy? It is. And okay. we know from other sources, like there's this Jewish book called the Testament of Solomon that talks about Beelzebul and his power. And he's presented as sort of the archdemon. Hmm. And you see this in other Jewish works. And anyway, this is what they believed at this time was the prince of demons, the most powerful demon. Mm-hmm. And essentially what Jesus is being accused of is exercising demons, casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons, Mm -hmm. which is a serious claim, but also, as Jesus points out, it's short in its thinking. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's interesting that Jesus is talking about this too. You know, he's being confronted by these people from Jerusalem when he's in this house and there's a crowd that has, I guess, shut him in to the point where he can't even eat. They can't do anything. So his family decides that Jesus is out of his mind and they need to take charge. Which hmm. is, I mean, I have in-laws. They're pretty chill. They've yeah. never done anything like this. Yeah. Where they tell me I'm out of my mind. Mm-hmm. What, about, what about your immediate family? Oh, well, they definitely think well, I'm out of my mind. What do you mean? <laughs> he doesn't have in-laws here. This is immediate family. And, yeah. But, but it that's does a little feel bit of strange, a little extreme. Yeah. Like, it's like, whoa. Strange relationship with your family that they're like, you're out of your mind. Mm-hmm. Is there any sort of clarity you can provide for that? <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, it's an honor and shame society. And and we live in a somewhat honor and shame driven Mm -hmm. society, not quite the same way, but these things are at play. And 
his family is probably scared about what others think about them. Mm-hmm. They're probably scared about what might happen to them. Yeah. But we've talked about this messianic secret. Another reason why Jesus, again, would hide his identity from others is mm-hmm. because if it's revealed too quickly that he's a Messiah, and if it's believed that the Messiah, which everybody believed at this time, was someone who would rise up and deliver the Jews from the Romans, well, if the Roman soldiers and right. leaders heard about this, they would put him to death right, right away. He had and more so, work to do. Yeah, and so his yeah. family hears about this, mm-hmm. all he's doing and saying, and... And their crowd's gathering. And their so crowd's kind of gathering. making right. a big deal about yeah, it. Yeah, mm. exactly. And they're worried that they're mm-hmm. also going to suffer the same fate. So these sorts of things are at play, and that's why they say he's out of his mind. What's actually kind of cool about this the way the story has been written is it's what Markin scholars call a Markin sandwich, meaning you have a story. I do love sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> it's food again. You have two stories where one story is inserted in the middle of a different story. So the story begins with his family saying he's out of his mind, mm-hmm. accusing him of being off, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe being demon possessed, let's yeah. say. Okay. Then you have the story about these teachers of the law who mm-hmm. accuse him of overthrowing demons by the power of demons. Right. And then it comes back to his family. And we're basically supposed to interpret the stories in light of each other and see how they work together. Oh, that's interesting because the next thing he says is something about a house being divided, right? Yes. It seems like it speaks mm-hmm. to exactly. both situations that he's talking about. You're right. His immediate family, the house he grew up in, mm-hmm. is already in a sense divided against him. And he's now talking about the, the people house. who have eaten and the people who haven't eaten. Yeah. That's how they're divided. <laughs> Wait, what? what? Oh, this is, this is Tyler's house. <laughs> yeah, this is Tyler's house. No, Jesus and disciples had eaten. Oh, yes. Like, okay, yes. They couldn't eat. And then yes. the other people, yes. it's not my house. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of my house. So we're going to see this many more times throughout the book where you have stories like this Mark put and together. sandwich. Mark and yeah. sandwich. Well, so this phrase of if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. It's a pretty profound statement. I think he's using it as a defense for the claim that he would be possessed in some way. Yeah. And he's saying, basically, how can I be possessed and use the power of my own possession to eradicate possession in others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But for me, I'm like, that's actually a pretty profound statement for yeah. just our houses, whether yeah. it's our home life or our church life. Or the church altogether. I mean, church broadly speaking. Too. I mean, in all sorts of houses, you might say. Yeah. I, under I, the big C church. Under yeah. the big C mm-hmm. church, yeah. And so I think that's relevant for us as well, because it'd be so easy for us also to divide and, mm-hmm. and demonize others and look at people who clearly have the spirit living within them and accuse them of having demonic power. You, mm-hmm. know, you see this all the time in churches. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you touched on it in one of the discussion questions today about demonizing and vilifying, I think is the word that you said, of like other people that we don't understand or we think that don't believe the same things that we do. And it's really a pretty good application for our church, every church, Mm -hmm. everybody who says they believe the same thing, but have nuance to what they believe. Sure. And I'm just curious for you guys, how do you navigate that? Like if you come up against somebody who calls himself a Christian Mm -hmm. and they believe something radically different than what you do, how do you navigate that? I think we see that a lot, especially in student ministry, because, you know, students are brought up maybe in different backgrounds, religious backgrounds even. And then they're hearing about Jesus and the hope that they can have in Jesus, but maybe it contradicts some things that they were brought up believing. So then they have to kind of start to think through, okay, this is what I was taught when I was young, and now I'm trying to figure this out. And for me, and I feel like our leaders, one of the best things to do is just to listen to the other person. I think we're quick to speak and we're quick to judge why someone believes something or where they're coming from. And then it can cause dissension and it can cause you trying to get your point across. But if we would just like listen to each other and maybe even put ourselves in their shoes and see where they're coming from, then I think that we could have a natural conversation and it doesn't have to end badly. 
I would echo the same thing that Melissa said. I think it's so important that we just take time to slow down and listen to people, hear where they're coming from, understand their perspective, because there's usually a reason why Mm -hmm. someone thinks something. Sometimes people just draw conclusions and they haven't really thought this for themselves. They, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe they're indoctrinated with something or whatever. They haven't given a whole lot of thought to it. But a lot of times people have reasons for the things they believe or think. And so if we want to come to a place of understanding, then Mm -hmm. we need to at least take the first step and make sure we understand others and where they're coming from. And certainly Christians who have the same text as us, who are interpreting the same text and sometimes draw different conclusions. Mm -hmm. It's worth asking why they may have those ideas. And I think this happens best face-to-face and not on the internet. Really? Or on your phone. That's a surprise. (laughs) Why do you think that? Well, it seems like people tend to say whatever they want to say without having any consequence, you know, behind it. Yeah. And I think that's how huge debates get started online and on Twitter and on Facebook and stuff like that. And I think just talking to someone face-to-face makes them human. I think in the same way, like, people want to discuss this stuff. Mm -hmm. They really want to discuss the nuance or argue about it. And there's like creationism versus versus evolution. And there's like natural selection versus the Genesis story. And there's like all these different debates. And even just like the book of Revelation, everybody's like, oh, let's talk about, oh my God. Let's talk about all kinds. But (laughs) the number of times, yeah. Everybody wants to talk about those things because it's easy to try to latch onto those answers and be like, I'm right. Mm -hmm. This is how it is. And this gives me safety and security Mm -hmm. and like something to hold on to that's very like rock solid. But in reality, they're missing the point, which is that your life should be different. It's not about Mm. what you know or things that you think. Because if everybody's just latching onto those things that they know, then it's going to be like Jesus said, a house divided cannot stand. You're not going to stand the test of time. And if there's a group of people who are gathering together, you're going to be thinking differently. Mm -hmm. But if you're all living the same way Mm. and living the way that you're supposed to be living, then when tough times come, there's going to be some sort of disruption in your community, Mm -hmm. then you all have some sort of foundation to go back on because you're living in the way that you're supposed to. Not when your life is in many ways your best testimony to what you believe. We want to make a stand sometimes for, again, ideas. But why do people start to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? It's not because he's going around saying, I'm the Messiah. It's because he's going around and doing very messianic types of things. Right. As we see here, he's empowering his disciples to do things like him. And Mm -hmm. as we'll continue to discover, he asked them to live and care for people the way he cares for them. And so I think as Christ followers, that's where we need to start is by living as he did and Mm. making our lives a testimony. And I love how he ends that verse when he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And so it's kind of like he's calling them all back together to say, we are all family doing God's will together. Yeah, it's a commonality that Mm -hmm. transcends any sort of this other stuff of what you believe about me, what you believe about anything. Mm -hmm. If you're doing God's will, that's going to transcend any of it. Thanks for joining us for the Journey Through Mark podcast. If this is your first time, we're so glad you checked us out. To check out even more resources, children and family resources, and ebooks for all ages, visit our journey page at willowjourney.org and share your journey experience on social media with the hashtag willowjourney. If you have questions or would like to learn more about the ministries of Willow Creek Community Church, check out willowcreek.org. We'll see you tomorrow.